This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. It was scandalous then, and it's scandalous now. It made people tense up. It sent that bristling effect running down their spine. In ancient times, the final response was literally termed stopping up one's ears. But we have much more eloquent terms now for how to express when we we decide to respond to somebody or something that we don't like to hear, we want to get away from it. We call it ghosting, ghosting, (laughs) or tuning out, right? Tuning out. I have a dear friend of mine who uh, related to me a story about the other day about how he had invited his granddaughter to come to church with him. Uh, his daughter had been away from faith for, for a number of years, but his granddaughter was starting to show some interest in, in, in Jesus. And so he invited her to come with him to church that Sunday. And, and that Sunday, the pastor was preaching on a very hot topic of the culture and so forth. And, uh, and you know that feeling, you know, when you want to kind of look down the row and see how somebody's doing and whatnot with what's being said. And she was about 16 years old. And so, you know, he was a little concerned. But as he looked down the row, he noticed that actually she looked pretty calm. She looked pretty at ease, and that, that kind of surprised him uh, from what was being said. And, and so later on that afternoon, uh, after church, they were together, and he wanted to share with her, you know, what he saw, and just that, that surprised him, how calm she looked, and he wanted to know what, what she thought of what the pastor had said. Well, to his surprise, she said, well, I, I was calm because I just wasn't listening. <laughs> as soon as he said that part that I didn't agree with, I just tuned him out after that. I'm sure none of you parents experienced that with your 16-year-old. Yeah, right. I know that's the feeling. Uh, But needless to say, my friend was surprised, sad. Um, But you know what? That's my concern for us this morning. That when we hear this particular passage of Scripture, or or for somebody who's later on maybe listening to this by podcast, that, that when we come across a Scripture passage like this one today, that we feel that pull to just ignore to just tune out. And actually, if you are someone who maybe feels that pull, I, I'm thrilled that you're listening this morning. And, and my hope is that maybe you'll hear the whole thing out because actually this passage of the Bible that we're going to look at today, when it was originally written, it was already controversial. This passage, like I said, it was scandalous then and it's scandalous now. If you're wondering what topic could possibly spark such visceral reactions even 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years later, the answer in a word is home. The home. Home sweet home, the household. And if you know your Bibles and your history, you know that the ancient world had a lot of problems with the Christian views on the home. And, and, and today, if you're paying at all attention uh, to things that you hear, you know that the world has a lot of problems with biblical views on the household relationships. But I believe that the passage that we're going to see this morning, it offers us tremendous help in an unhinged world. Help that's not a a checklist of boxes, but 
is a principle that's rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. And it can help us today. It can help us in any relationship. It can help us specifically, though, in our relationships of our home. And so let's take a look at it together. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Now, just so we're clear, what's happening in this passage, in this particular context that's going on here, and that matters because, you know, you can make the Bible say whatever you want if you just rip it out of its context. Paul here, he's been talking about who Jesus is and what that means for the life of a Christian, how he has complete authority in life and in our lives. And so the implications of that message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the gospel message, it calls for change in our life, and it has changed us. It changed us, and it calls for our change. That's what we looked at last week. And that applies to all Christians, whatever your background, your race, your status is. It applies to us internally and externally. It applies to us personally. It applies to us corporately. At the end of chapter 3, right here, Paul is applying it to those relationships that are in our home. Uh, This is a kind of household code, if you will, for Christians. Uh, You know that wall art that's that's oftentimes hung that says house rules? Things like hug often, dream big, Bedtime is negotiable. At least that's what it says in my household. Um, It's kind of like that, except for it's serious. It's serious. And in that day and time, this was actually a common topic. This This was something that had been written about because the household was really, really important. It wasn't just where your family lived. It was your inheritance. It was your place of employment. It was your community. It was everything. And so big names like Plato and Aristotle and Philo and Josephus, they had all addressed this idea of a household code, a way that the household was supposed to work. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's addressing this same issue and he's laying out how Christian relationships in the household in the first century were to function. It's cast under this light of verse 17 that we heard from last week as we're making our way through Colossians. Verse 17, it says this of chapter 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now to do something in the name of someone else, it meant that you're doing some kind of service to them And in the the context of this passage, you can also imply that that you're doing that service in a way that also honored who you were serving. In this case, Christ. Christ. And now keep that verse in mind as, as we hear this household code that follows here, starting in verse 18. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Well, there's our first landmine. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. There's our second landmine for some of us. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Well, there's our third landmine. And not by eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the first thing on our minds, whether you're a Christian or not, in hearing a passage like this, is whether or not this scandalous passage is just an endorsement of slave owners and misogynists. Well, the answer is no. No. And we'll see the reasoning for that along the way this morning. But you know, the purpose of this passage for a follower of Jesus Christ it should never be swallowed up in defending itself against the world's assaults to the point where it loses the focus of the amazing help that it offers Christians in their relationships. But I can tell you, see, as a, as a child of this generation, that's my temptation. With the hard parts of the Bible to feel like I just need to defend Maybe you can sympathize with this. To simply get caught up playing defense rather than offense with the Bible. To try to prove and defend difficult passages rather than celebrating, living, and sharing them boldly. So to let that happen as a Christian, to the point where we have lost our joy and freedom in this passage, it means that we have lost sight of Christ's authority and his beauty in our life. Christians, if we are so bound up in fear of offending our world, we will miss out on all that is offered to us. If we are so afraid of offending our world, then how can we be so afraid of offending God? If we're consumed by concern for somebody else's opinion, we have lost sight of our fear of God's opinion. And that will rob us of the gift that's offered to each and every one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ in this passage. And it will deceive us into thinking, this is just another weight. This is just another problem to be explained. Now, if you don't know Jesus, your suspicions make sense, right? And I want to address them along the way. But if you do know Jesus, I want us to bear that in mind, that we have nothing to be ashamed of and nothing that needs trading in when it comes to the Word of God. And so with, with that in mind, let's start unpacking this passage. First of all, let's remember that Paul has an audience. Paul's audience was highly patriarchal. Uh, it was a very patriarchal society. Verse 18, about wives submitting. Verse 20, about children obeying in everything. Verse 22, about bond servants or slaves working. Same word here, working here. That would have been normal. That would have been common. This has no surprises for any of the people that the Apostle Paul was first writing to. Let that sink in. Literally, there were laws in Roman culture, laws about how a slave couldn't be freed before the age of 30 without serious consequences for the slave. There were laws about how many slaves you could free and how many slaves you had to keep, and so on and so forth in all these different areas. Everything that we find weird about this passage was normal life in a pagan culture. And so the Apostle Paul then, he has some different sensitivities than us as he's writing. Second, what would have been amazing to the people who were the original audience of this was the fact that they are being addressed 
as equals. And that is husbands, fathers, master relationships that are being changed or being promoted while, or being demoted while they are being promoted. I mean, have you ever wondered where the idea of equality sprang from? Let me tell you, there is no equality in a worldview that is about survival of the fittest. There's no equality in that worldview or in many of the other major worldviews regarding the value of human life. There's nothing requiring it. There is no equality there. Instead, as Paul has just finished saying a few verses before this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, here, as in the, in the body of Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Brothers and sisters, we have equality bound up in a biblical view, a Christian view of people. In fact, what we have going on, what we can see evidence-wise in the early church was of them releasing slaves, of them going to extraordinary lengths to raise money to free other slaves. And we have this kissing campaign going on, right? We have this kissing. Remember that weird passage about greet each other with a holy kiss? It's the line we used at Bible college with our first girlfriend, you know, just. <laughs> maybe that didn't work for you, I don't know, but <clears throat> Adele said it didn't work for me either. Um, well, you didn't do that with Greeks and Jews. You didn't do that across social, relational, uh, ethnic barriers, slaves and free. You definitely didn't do that. But that's what they were doing in the early church as they were beginning to bring down all of these barriers. And that says a lot about how the early church understood these verses. Now, number three, finally, submitting to someone else does not make you any less equal. Submitting to someone else does not make you any less equal. Otherwise, your value, your equality is based situationally or it is based on someone else's opinion of you. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you have inherent value because God has valued you, because God has made you. You're valuable. You have equality. You have worth, and nobody can take that from you. Jesus' example then matters in this because his example was of submission and service. Philippians 2.7 says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Servant or slave, by the way, it's the same word in the Greek. This is being used in, it's being used in all these occurrences of Jesus, of all Christians, and yes, of those in this household station too. So these things, taken together, we can see that Paul is speaking here out of a gospel mindset that he's just finished laying out, a vantage point that calls for all Christians in any situation, don't miss this, for Christians in any situation to measure their present relationships in light of their eternal relationship. We are to measure our present relationships in light of our eternal relationship, that every Christian is called upon to carry out our relationships then in the name of Jesus, the one who set the example by willfully submitting and serving others. That's our call. 
So practically here, our call is to serve Jesus by serving each other. We're to serve Jesus by serving each other. That's what this passage is about. That's what it's calling for. That, that was Jesus' example for his followers, and that's what Paul is measuring our actions against. Not the world's, right? not somebody else's, but Jesus' actions. And, and, and he applies that then to our current situations. This is a principle that's timeless, and he's directing it to a group that he considers to be equals. These are the shoes that we still walk in today. Nothing has changed in that regard. Friends, this is an idea, though, that the world is disgusted by. Because it's an idea that they can't comprehend, that, that, that because they don't have Jesus as their Lord. They don't understand how Scripture can tell you to count others as being more significant than yourself without losing value yourself. They can't understand how we can be called to love our enemies and to do good instead of repaying evil without devaluing ourselves. And finally, they cannot understand what it means to do right by Jesus even if it feels hurtful to someone else because they aren't measuring themselves against Jesus' example. They're, in, they're not interested in the call to die to self. The world cannot grasp a call to serve Jesus by serving each other. But of course, it's not like we don't struggle with this too, right? I mean, we are amazed that the God of the universe would incarnate himself and come down and he would wash the grody feet of the disciples. But we're not too sure what to do when the towel gets handed to us. <laughs> We're not too sure about washing our husband's feet, washing our wife's feet, washing our parents' feet, washing our kids' feet, washing our employer's feet, washing our employees' feet. But that's how we wash Jesus' feet. That's how we wash his feet. That's why he can say that when you do this unto the least of these, my brothers, you do this unto me. The gospel way in relationships is not how can you serve me, but how can I serve you because Jesus served me first, regardless of the situation. Everything in word and deed is to be done in service to Christ. So friends, let me ask you the question that I think is laced in this text. If you're any one of the six characters and one of the three relationships here, the one question that I think is being asked of each and every one of them is who do you want to please? Who do you want to please? With your home, with your work, with your children, your friends, just by yourself, who do you want to please? I want to apply that to the first relationship that we have in the passage here, wives and husbands. Look back at those verses with me. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. How are Christians to do everything in the name of Jesus when it comes to marriage? How are a husband and wife to be Christ-like to each other? What, what does the gospel mean for our marriage? Well, serving one another looks like submitting, loving, and being gentle. I appreciate how Tim and Kathy Keller have written on this issue where it's found in Ephesians chapter 5. 
They wrote saying this, if only if you, so only if you have the ministry of the Spirit in your life will you be fully furnished to face the challenges of marriage in general, and only if you are filled with the Spirit will you have all that you need to perform the duty of serving your spouse in particular. In verses 22 to 24, speaking of Ephesians 5 here, Paul says controversially, that wives should submit to their husbands. Immediately, however, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, verse 25, which is, if anything, a stronger appeal to abandon self-interest than was given to the woman. As we shall see, each of these exhortations has a different shape. They're not identical tasks. And yet each partner is called to sacrifice in far-reaching ways. Whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or a wife in marriage. As a follower of Christ, who wants to be like him when it comes to marriage, having the desire to please Christ means serving your spouse. That's what it means. And that's not being a misogynist, that's not being a feminist, but a Christian. And so let me ask you, wives, what does it look like for you to submit to your husband? I, I, not men in general, your husband. And, and, and I know that there's other passages of Scripture that talk about submitting to one another. I get, I get that. That's wonderful. But what does submitting look like for you? And husbands, I know other passages talk about respect and leadership, and I know you, know you don't always feel like it, but what does loving your wife look like for you today? Not 20 years ago, today. What does that look like? Because our call is to serve Christ by serving one another, and that is a beautiful gift that we get to live into with God's help. What about children? They're part of the household too, right? What does serving Christ look like for them? What does pleasing him look like? Fathers and children, verses 20 to 21, look back at that with me. Children, obey your parents in everything. Right? Everything as in everything that is right, right. If it's ever between following God's rules and man's rules, God's rules are to win every time. right? Everything as in everything that is good and right. All right, why? Here's why. For this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, fathers do not provoke, or in other words, exasperate your children. And by the way, this is not adult children that is in focus here in our culture, those over 18. The idea here is in both verses of young children. You cannot tell your 40-year-old son what to do, even if he wants to, okay? It's not an option for you. But why not exasperate? Here's why lest they become discouraged. Or another word, maybe a better word, embittered. It's the idea of having a, a bad taste in your mouth. Now let's not forget that in that day and time, children, you were considered your father's property, right? like a goat, okay? You were property. Today, we are concerned about the issue of infanticide in our culture. But Roman culture, in Roman culture, that already existed because a child was just a piece of property. Jesus' teaching was, though, that children, and not just sons, are in, have inherent value because they are made in the image of God. And Paul's call to minors, all right, those of you who have not been yet released to fend for yourselves, it's to obey. 
And dads, your call, because your sons and daughters have value that God's placed on him and you want to serve him, is not to push them towards bitterness, towards you or, or life, to wear them out till they're discouraged. But dads, do you know how I think we typically end up doing that? It's by having a critical spirit. Uh, a while back, I was reading a, a classic by Dale Carnegie. And in the book, he includes a poem that's somewhat fa famous now, Father Forgets. In the poem, it's about a father who all day long finds fault with his little boy. But at the end of the day, the, the, that, that evening, his son runs up and gives him a hug. And this so surprises the father that, that it moves him to tears and to apologize. As I read that poem, though, I just felt the convicting whisper of the Holy Spirit, the kind of whisper that says, you are that man. Fathers, I want to encourage you. If the Lord's convicting you about a critical spirit with your children, pay attention to it. Because you might succeed at bending them to your will, but if it's used in a critical spirit, you will also be bending them towards bitterness and discouragement. Parents, we are to parent in a way that serves the Lord, that honors Him, and ultimately our children, they're just entrusted to us for a little while. So let's be sure that we steward them well. And children, obey your parents, and God will honor that obedience. Even if it involves cleaning up the room, the dining room, Judah, wherever you're at in here, um, it's my son. Just need to slip that in there. Now, finally, third relationship, slaves and masters. This is a, the relationship that is addressed in verses 22 to chapter 4. One. Now, I know, and you know, slavery's wrong. And yes, we can go to the book of Philemon and, and what Paul wrote there. We can look at Jesus' commands, and we can find warrant for that. But that's not what's in view in this passage. That's not what's in view. If you're curious uh, and you want to learn more about what the Bible has to say about the issue of slavery in general, I point you in the direction of Dr. Peter Williams and his excellent lectures in this area. But again, that's not what's in view here. He's speaking to someone who is already in that role and he is applying the gospel to them. That slave or free, master or bondservant, that although it's not a one-for-one -one comparison, today, employee, employer that Christians in those roles, that you are called to measure your relationship, your present relationship, in light of your eternal relationship. That that's the bigger point. That as Christ followers, we all have one master, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And, and, and that is what applies to even our most messed up relationships that are all upside down. You know, a large number of the people that Paul would have been talking to here, that they were people that had sold themselves for a certain number of years of labor to someone else. And now whether it was that person uh, that had come to know Jesus or someone other in this, or potentially in a rare case, maybe like in the book of Philemon, we have both people who have come to know Jesus. And they are all called, any of those kinds of things, they are called to see themselves in light of serving Christ, Christ, no matter what. Now, I, I know I've shared this poem with you before, but I keep coming back to it. 
because personally, I find it to be such a great expression of what it means to serve Jesus by serving others. And I have it posted in my office because I need the reminder. And it says this, people are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity, happiness, some might be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Because in the final analysis, it was between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. The poem is attributed to Mother Teresa. Friends, some of us are working overtime to keep Jesus and our faith out of our work. Because we have wrongfully been convinced that the problems that we have with our boss, with our employees, with our coworkers, with our customers are just between us. And so we're not working for a heavenly inheritance. We're just working for a paycheck. We're not trying to, to truly work hard. We're just trying to outwork the competition or the guy down the hall. We have been caught up into wrongfully thinking that it is our job to right every wrong we experience because we have grown distrustful that God will be just, that he will make sure that everything is dealt with in the end. And ultimately, it would seem that when our attitudes towards our work are completely soured, it is because we have lost track of who we are really working for. We forgot. It was never between them and us. Anyway, I was on the phone yesterday with somebody that I dearly love, and they're in the midst of a situation where their job has changed, even though they've put 15, 17 years of hard work into it. And it's not a change that they like, and it's a change that's going to probably bring about the end of their employment. But you know what? This person's an owner. They think of their work, and, and they've worked hard for it. But they, what they feel like is all that work is slipping away. And so as I was talking with them on the phone, the encouragement I shared with them was the encouragement here, that it was never for someone else anyways. It was for the Lord. And that is a worthy endeavor, even if all of your work is gone, because it was for him, and he deserves our best. So we need to do some heart coaching. Wives, your husbands might never appreciate all it costs you to submit. Submit anyway. Husbands, your wives might never notice all the acts of love you perform. Love anyway. Children, your parents may never really care about your effort or apologize for their wrongs. Obey anyway. Employers, you might get cheated by your employees. Be fair. Anyway, and employees, you might be wronged and disrespected by your boss. Work hard anyway, because when it comes to the end of your life, it was never for them anyway.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have offered us something so much better, that we instead have the option of not seeing your acceptance and praise as a consolation prize, but as the only prize that is worth having. We thank you, Father, that you have called us to serve you in a way that is pleasing to you, in a way that is fitting to you, because it is for you. And that is a glorious ambition that we've been invited into. God, I thank you so much for that. And I pray that our work would take on a spirit, a mindset that says it was for you anyway. We pray that in your son Jesus' mighty name. Amen.